All right, it's been two weeks since I've preached, so I'm ready to go. Let's go. Colossians chapter 2. Come on, open it up. Get your Bibles. Put them on your lap. Open them up to Colossians 2. If you don't have a Bible, there will be the words on the screen. Um, I, am, uh, I am really excited about today. Next week is Easter. Here's the way we handle Easter. Um, we're just going to talk about Jesus again next Sunday, conspicuously enough. And we're going to stay in Colossians because the next block of Colossians is particularly um, poignantly about what Jesus did on the cross. And so I don't see any real need for us to go outside of Colossians for an Easter message. Um, so wear purple and come and bring people that don't know Jesus. Uh, we're not trying to skim cute people off from other churches and just build an empire here. We want to make Jesus known in a religious but mostly lost area. That's our strategy. That's what we do. <laughs> so invite coworkers that don't know about Jesus. They're not going to hear a bunch of cool stuff or no, you know, uh, lofty programs. We're going to sing a few songs about Jesus and we're going to talk about Jesus and we're going to try and bring people to decision about Jesus. And then we're going to do it again the next week and the next week and the next week. Just next week happens to be uh, the Christian adaptation of a pagan holiday that we call Easter, which really, and anyway, don't get me started. Every Sunday, every Sunday at a Christian church is Resurrection Sunday because Jesus rose from the grave. That's why we're here. We're here because there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem every Sunday. All right, let's go. You're getting me off track. Colossians 2. Uh, we took nine messages to get through Colossians chapter 1. It, we were kind of going at a snail's pace to unpack some of the beautiful wisdom and some of Paul's logic that I think was particularly important. We're going to pick up the pace a little bit in chapters 2 and 3. Chapter 2 is probably going to take us three Sundays to get through. We're going to look at 10 verses here. And in this particular portion of the letter, we really start to get into the reason why Paul wrote this letter in the first place to the Colossians. Remember what I told you, I guess, nine weeks ago now, so no, you probably don't remember it, but the reason for the letter of Colossians is Paul did not actually plant the church at Colossae. He was in the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20. He's preaching, and there's this great revival in Ephesus, and the whole town is turned upside down. Some of these pagan blacksmiths who were making little bobblehead dolls for their Greek gods were starting to burn their uh, artifacts that they were selling because they realized that they were worshiping false gods. And so it was beginning to affect the whole economy and the business of Ephesus. And there happened to be a young man there whose name was Epaphras. And Epaphras was from the city of Colossae, heard the gospel preached by Paul, and then went back to his city at Colossae, planted the church that became the Colossian church, that then Paul now is writing a letter to because it had been a few years now. And Epaphras now comes back to Paul and says that we have started out well, but there is a little bit of a problem in the church. And the problem is that there is these other teachers, whether they were from within the Colossian church or whether they were from outside of the Colossian church, there's a group of sort of super spiritual gurus that have come and are beginning to teach the people that, yeah, Jesus is okay, but you then have to kind of add something to your experience with Jesus. There's like a higher level of mysticism, sort of a, an esoteric spirituality. Kind of think of like a combination of like a, 
a Deepak Chopra or Oprah-like figure who kind of comes and says, well, don't throw away your Christianity, but add to it some sort of higher thing, whatever it may be. Maybe it was some Jewish sort of religious elite people who said, yeah, Christianity is okay, but sort of add to it some of the old Jewish things like circumcision or dietary laws, or maybe it was something a little bit more super spiritual than that. I don't know. But the whole point of Paul's letter is is that he is trying to refute and dispel the notion, the false gospel, that it's Jesus plus some other thing, some other experience, some other level of understanding, some other deeper meaning. Jesus plus these things is what is really faith. And he's saying, no, that it's Jesus plus no other thing is what... Jesus alone, faith in him is what equals salvation. And so he's going to get into that argument here in Colossians chapter 2. And so today, unlike other Sundays, I really don't have any points or lists. We're just making one overarching point, And then we're just going to just go through these ten verses and just, just unpack them, hopefully. And hopefully see this one overarching point. And that point is this. That our hearts... Because we are born sinful, we are born idolaters, we are born self-worshippers, we are born with hostility towards God. Our hearts are inclined, naturally, to seek salvation in everything but God. We fill our lives with functional saviors, and oftentimes those functional saviors are not red devils that jump out from behind bushes with pitchforks saying, hey, you want to wreck your life? No, they are more they are more deceptive, more seemingly, as Paul will say, plausible arguments that slowly but surely draw us away from the supremacy and the soul sufficiency of Christ. And so we need to be on guard against the functional saviors in our life. So let me let me read these ten verses all together. And then let me pray, and then let's go back through it slowly, but surely. Let's read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. This is Paul now speaking to the Colossians, and he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible Arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, 
and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us understand today. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this day and the great privilege to open up your Bible. We believe that the Bible is in fact your holy and inspired word, that it is without error and that it is breathed out by you. That every little jot and tittle, every crossing of each T and the dotting of each I is inspired by you in its original languages and has been transmitted to us faithfully and carefully by people that gave their lives for the preservation of the Bible. And therefore, because this is not just a book, but it is in fact the book in your book, it carries with it all authority. We are arrogant, pompous, self-righteous Americans. We value individualism and independence over humility and dependence. And so we confess that we often come to the Bible thinking that we can pick and choose from it that which is helpful to us and disregarding the portions that humble us and level our pride. So would you give us the unusual grace of humility today? Would you let this word examine us and wreck us and humble us? And would we not come to it with judgmental hearts? Would you cause us as a people by your spirit through your word to be formed today? Lord, there are no doubt with a crowd this size, people in this room who are not believers in Jesus. Some of them realize they're not and they're here just checking things out. And I'm so thankful that they are here. Would you cause them to be welcome? And would you open up their hearts with the Holy Spirit? And would you, would you through me and through the spirit that is in the room and in the hearts of these people, would you, would you allow a pathway for them to see Jesus and receive him? No doubt, Lord, there are also people in this room who think that they are Christians, but they are not. Would you cause their hard, self-righteous, cultural, religious hearts to melt? And would you bring to life their heart and would you cause them to see and savor Jesus in a way that they have not before? Would you help them not rely on religion and self-righteousness and church attendance and decent morality as their way to eternity? But would you cause them to trust in Christ alone? And then for those of us that have already done that but need encouragement along the way, would you help us see and savor Jesus Would you blow away the dust and would you encourage us today? And would you identify by your Holy Spirit the functional saviors that even those of us who know our Savior so quickly run to, even after salvation? Would you do this kind grace for us? And would you you draw a straight line with a crooked stick because, God, I need your help today. I am a hypocritical, mixed-up, confused, arrogant, prideful, distracted young preacher who needs the Holy Spirit. So would you come now 
And would you do what only you can do? In Jesus' name, amen. Paul starts off this section with a look at his struggle for these people in Colossae and Laodicea and the church. And it's interesting to note what, what exactly he is struggling for. And most of the people that have written commentaries on Colossians, in fact, just about all of them, would say that Paul's struggle in this situation is, is that he is struggling for the people that they would get the gospel, that they would get what he is laboring, what he has spent his life for, the clear presentation of the gospel of Christ, that they would understand that. And so we can read this two ways. As Paul saying to them, he's saying, let me, in fact, let me go back and read it. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. So we don't really know if Paul is saying that I want you to just be encouraged by the fact that I am struggling for you and that this will cause you to be encouraged and it will cause you as a group of people to be knit together. Or if he's saying that I am praying that you will be those things. But either way, I think this truth applies and it's very fruitful. Isn't it helpful to know that there are people praying for you like there is somebody like laboring for you and you can kind of tell sort of when you're you're connected to a christian brother and we need that in a body of christ and a group of people that are deciding to do life together people that actually struggle that they that they that they wear one another's burdens not just sort of momentarily on their sleeve but in their heart and and paul is i just want you to get a picture i don't have any great illustration or some some really spectacular point. I just want you to feel the, the nitty, gritty, raw weight of Paul's heart for these people. And I want you to be captivated by that, captivated by that. And I want us to dig our fingernails into that. that there's this sense that Paul is laboring. He's sweating. He, he is laying down his life for these people so that they would be two things. And those two things, just to kind of encapsulate what he is saying, is that they would be encouraged and that they would be entwined or intertwined or I don't even know if those are words, but you know what I'm talking about. Encouraged and intertwined together. And it's in this context of being encouraged and entwined together as a people that something beautiful happens. They reach the full assurance of faith in Christ. And here's this first little point before we get to functional saviors that I want us to see. And it is incredibly simple, but I believe it is incredibly important that we as a church and we as a culture understand how vitally important it is to be in a local expression of the body of Christ, which is a local church. And it is in that context, it's in that soil that we are most prominently encouraged and intertwined together. And when you bring those two things together, it brings us to a place where we can have, as Paul says, the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of Christ. And so here's what I'm pleading for very simply before we start to think about what our functional saviors are. I want to plead with you to in your heart see 
the deep and biblical and profound importance of the local church and what we are doing. In fact, this local church, it is absolutely necessary for your soul. Hear me now. I'm going to calm it down so I don't get ramped up and say something crazy or you lose me in my, in my emotion. If you are a believer in Jesus, you need vital connection. You need to be a member of. You need to be committed to. You need to walk in covenant relationship with a group of people who are doing life together in accountability, in encouragement, and a sort of biblical interconnectedness that in that context allows them as a people and as individuals to see Jesus better. And I know that in our rugged individualistic church-hopping society, that offends people. But you need to hear it. You need to be connected in a covenantal sort of way not just in a consumeristic sort of way where you kind of go for a while and then you go somewhere else and then you go for a while or you're kind of on the fringe. Your soul, my soul needs to have people that are struggling for us and then to be in a place where we can be encouraged and intertwined, where our names are known, where our gifts are encouraged and where there is Listen to me now, where there is pressure on us because our inclination is towards laziness and self-service and, and, and distraction and functional saviors, what we'll get to in a minute. And we need to be in a situation where there is pressure on us. We understand that in every other realm of life. We realize that if we don't exercise our muscles, they will atrophy and we will, we will lose muscle and gain weight. We realize that if we're lifting a bar off of our chest, that the pressure of that weight down on us causes negative pressure. And that pain, that pressure, that push is the very thing that causes our muscle to grow. But for some reason, and I believe it's because of the spiritual attack of the enemy, whenever we get pushed on spiritually, we, we either resist it, we, we keep it at an arm's length, or we run to another place. That is horrible for your soul. And so I want to just encourage three different types of people that might be in here. Let me, just, let me just help before we move on to functional saviors. Help you see how absolutely essential it is for our soul and for the impact of the gospel in our city and in our valley that we be. Not to the exclusion, because I don't want you to hear me wrong and say that, oh, Brad just thinks that Crosspoint should be the only thing that you do. No, no, no. I think that the, I want a thousand churches that are preaching, preaching the gospel, taking very seriously church life in our area. But my responsibility is this church, right? This is, the, I, you know what? I got three things. I got, my life as a husband, I got my life as a father, and I got my life as a pastor. Everything else, I don't care. I don't care. I don't, I don't, it's outside of my circle. I don't, I don't, I'm not a community activist. I don't, I'm not a political guy. I mean, I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm, I'm not, you know, no bumper stickers for Save the Whales or Manatees or whatever. Your cause, rock it out, do your thing. Believe me, and this, this, if you, I don't even really care about football anymore. I don't have time for it. No, seriously, you can ask. Is it true? I mean, I talk all this smack. I don't. 
Because I'm giving my life, and it's not just because I'm a pastor. I'm saying that, and I'm not saying we should have hobbies, don't take me wrong. What I'm saying is, is that the, a priority in the life of a biblical healthy Christian should be their commitment and covenantal relationship with a group of people who are doing life together. Why? Why? So that the pastor can be happy because he has a role of church people? No! Because in that in that pot of soil is where people most prominently see the full assurance of faith and the person and work of Christ. And so, can I, can I plead with you for just a moment to the person who's an insider at Crosspoint? You're here, and you've settled in, and this is your place, and you are, in fact, being used here. Can I just, can I encourage you like we all need occasionally? Can I, can I ask you to maybe in a more prominent way, join the struggle and make more, even more of a concerted effort to get outside of your social circle and play, think of yourselves, this would be a good word picture for you, play the role of human Velcro. Like just see yourself as just human Velcro, that you are a connector. Look, I realize there are different personality types and I realize that some of us it's very easy to engage socially, others it's very difficult. I understand that, but whatever, however you can cause relationships to stick, whatever you can contribute to that, would you, see, would you see sort of the mission and the life and the advance of the gospel through this group of people? Would you sort of see that as part of your deal? If you have a gift, whether it's teaching or hospitality or faith or wisdom or whatever it is, would you consider making the primary avenue of your service to the kingdom to be through the local church, through Crosspoint, if this is your place? Look, I'm, I, and again, I'm not saying this to the exclusion of our, of our friendships and involvement and other mystery, uh, ministries and other things, but I'm saying that the, the, the God's plan to advance the gospel worldwide, his primary way of doing that, undeniably biblically, is through the local church. And so, would you consider, would you consider making this the primary avenue of your mentorship, of your hospitality, of your, of your service, so that in this place, not that we become an inward-looking place, but that in this place we become, as the local church, a display of God's glory, and that, that thing called the local church actually becomes cooperatively as a group an attractive aroma of Christ that becomes an evangelistic force for people and actually becomes an environment where more people are attracted to than individual pockets of faithful Christianity. Do you see that? Do you get that picture? So if you're, if you're a cross point insider, would, could, you, could you see that a little bit more clearly and could you, could you commit to that? Now, the second person to the person on the fringe, you've been, you've been around for a while, but you haven't really connected. You're kind of keeping it. You're a little gun shy, and maybe it's because of a previous bad experience. And, oh, I understand that. I mean, I understand church cultures can hurt us. Can they not? Because it's a vulnerable place. I understand that. Um, but, but you've been coming for a while, and you're kind of struggling to find your place. First off, I know, I know how difficult a church culture can be to break into. But can you do your part in this struggle? And can you, can you be a little courageous and a little bit more visible and a little bit more brave and kind of put your heart out there? Now listen, I, I, in fact, I wrote this down because I didn't want to, I don't, I don't, in fact, I never read anything um, that I've written, but I, I actually wrote this down. Some of you have been hurt 
And to, to give yourself to another church community is very scary to you, and I, I understand that. But can I tell you that in your self-preserving mode, you end up protecting yourself not from more hurt, but from the source of healing that can only come through connection to the body of Christ, which is a local church. So if you're kind of on the fringe and you really haven't given, look, we need your gifts so that people can be encouraged and entwined and so that a group of people can see Jesus more clearly. Um, and then and there's, there's another group of people within that other group. Some of you, honestly, are just a, a little self-absorbed and you've not yet grasped the call to biblical community that can only come through your local church and your participation, your regular contribution of your time, your talents, and your treasures are vital to the health and the mission of this local church so that together we as a people can be a display of God's glory and we can be encouraged and entwined and together we can reach the full assurance of God's mystery, which is Christ. And listen to the third person that may be here today. I know we have some out-of-town guests, so um, take this for what it's worth in your life, but there are certainly people that are probably visiting here from our area to the visitor. It's here for the first time or maybe it's your first few times and you're evaluating a church or searching for a church, can I encourage you, listen, can I encourage you to make connecting with a local church an absolute priority in your life? Your soul was made for covenantal community. You need it. And can I give you a couple tips on what to look for in a local church? Don't look for a fancy building or programs or... Uh, entertainment-like services. Look for sincere people who preach out of the Bible. If they don't talk about Jesus a lot, go somewhere else. If they don't preach against sin and the self-absorption that is our American, American culture, go somewhere else. If they seem to be sort of downplaying the truth of the Scriptures as a way to hook you or other visitors in and then think that they will gradually bring you to a place of maturity in Christ, I, I can tell you that, that the heart behind that is probably one of, of, of sincerity, but that way never ultimately works. Go to a church that clearly talks from the Scripture about Jesus, that is clear about the Gospel, that is clear about sin, and that will care for your soul. And that, that's the place that you should connect, whether it's here or somewhere else. Go there. And then, and then Paul is saying, now let's, let's push back from that point now and go again where he's saying that I'm struggling for you, that you would be encouraged and that your hearts would be knit together. And it's in this context, it's in this context that we reach the full assurance of faith. Now that's not to say that if you're not connected heart, soul, and mind to a group of people that are doing life together that you can't know Jesus or that you can't be a Christian. But it is God's design, clearly, biblically, that we, when we're in this context, to be encouraged that we reach the full assurance, verse 2 there, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this is not saying when Paul says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's not saying that that people that don't know Jesus can't know truth. In fact, there are some brilliant atheists. In fact, there are probably thousands and thousands and thousands of brilliant atheists that live in the world today. But it is to say 
that what Paul is saying here is that the beauty and the wonder and the greatness and the supremacy of Christ, all that you need for life and godliness can be found in Christ and in Christ alone. And it's in the context of a local group of people that are living together in encouragement and fidelity and honesty and rugged, rugged, hard community that we see Christ most fully. Not in the perfection of that community, but as the people within that community sin against one another and rub one another wrongly or disappoint one another or get angry at one another, as they handle rugged life together, and then as they give grace to one another, they in a beautiful way display the greatness of the gospel to one another so that our hearts are encouraged and to the world so that what then becomes attractional to the world is not a program or not a service or not the gift of one person but a beautiful aroma, a display of God's grace, the gospel, the person and the work of Jesus in a community that together is laboring to do that, who love one another to the end. Do you see how beautiful that is? And Paul says that it's in that place that we most clearly see Christ. Now, why do we need that so desperately? And that gets us into the bulk of what I'm going to talk about here for the next 10 minutes, and then we'll shut it down. Actually, I don't commit to that 10 minutes. He says in verse 4, I say this, not just so that you will be happy Christians, separated from culture, not just so that you're Kids will grow up in a relatively safe atmosphere. Not just so that you can have something to do on Sundays and then look down at the end of your nose at culture who is falling. He's saying, I am saying this. In fact, I am struggling over this. Because I do not want you in verse 4 to be deluded with plausible arguments that will come and destroy your soul. One of the great delusions in comfortable American Christianity is that we're basically okay, and if we live relatively relatively moralistic lives, that things are going to ultimately work out for us in the end because we've got more good chips than we got bad chips. Nothing could be more unbiblical, and nothing could be more wrong. There is an enemy, young man, Young woman, old man, old woman, and everybody in between, there is an enemy who is seeking to destroy you. And he, in his wisdom over the centuries and in his cunning deceitfulness, realizes that for most of us, he won't destroy us, like I said before, by jumping out from behind a bush with a pitchfork saying, hey, can I interest you in some crack cocaine or how about you sign up for You know, this latest diabolical plot. No, no. To good, self-righteous Americans, he drags us away with plausible arguments. Functional saviors. And he is just like these teachers that came into the Colossian church who were saying, yeah, Jesus is okay. Sure, go to church. 
Yeah, affirm that gospel. I mean, come on, it's a little antiquated, but affirm the gospel. I mean, really, people aren't sinful. But affirm the gospel. I mean, come on, God's not truly, you know, going to bring justice like that. Affirm that, whatever. It's kind of antiquated, but it's tradition. It's Christian culture. Affirm that. But then, then once you kind of do what you need to do for that antiquated traditional religion, then set your hope in these things. And these things will give you true happiness. And he says that deceptively, and he makes it plausible, so that we will be drawn away bit by bit. And Paul is saying that I am struggling for you, Colossians. I am struggling for you, Crosspoint, that you would not be deceptively, he goes on in verse 8 to say, be drawn away by philosophy and empty deceit. And that we would not rest in functional saviors. So what are functional saviors? I kind of, in my own life, categorized several things. Uh, Possessions, appearance, status and success, and acceptance. I spent a good part of the week thinking about examples that might apply to you. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then, then the Holy Spirit whispered, knocked on my heart and said, hey, home slice. What about your functional saviors? And so I'm going to unpack a few of mine and pray that the Holy Spirit will give you wisdom about your functional saviors. That first category, possessions. Um, I've always sort of prided myself self-righteously as not being a guy that really cares that much about stuff. But as you know, Jennifer and I have sold our house and are in an um, apartment. It's a very nice apartment, but it's a small apartment. We have four children. That's plus us two. That's six. And... Um, four of those, three of those children are boys, one who blows up that 1,500 square feet with a diaper uh, three or four times a day, and then the other two boys who are just 8 and 11 and just sort of generally stinky. And so we have been... Um, Bella's wonderful. She can do no wrong. She's my princess. <laughs> but now it's very plausible. It's very plausible, is it not, that as... Uh, a family of six that we need a good home. We need a place that we can do hospitality, bring you over to. It's, it's very plausible. Nobody would disagree that we need a home, right? I hope. Although there are people in this world who love Jesus and are serving Jesus that do not have homes, but the argument that we would buy a house is not one that is implausible, right? I mean, you don't instantly look at that and say, oh, wow, Brad, you're being incredibly selfish and materialistic for wanting to buy a home. But what has begun to happen in my heart over these past couple months is I have begun to set my heart and hope in a house. And we put a bid on a house about a month ago and found that there was another bid on this house and it was a very competitive thing. It was like a bad House Hunters HGTV episode. It was going down to the wire. And ultimately the good news is, is that we did get the house and we're moving into the house a week after Uh, uh, Monday after Easter, and I'm very, very thankful about that. But the point of the story is this, is that when the possibility that we might lose this house was a reality for me, it revealed my idolatry. And it revealed to me just how much I was putting my hope for my future in bricks and wood frames and a couple bedrooms. 
Now, I'm not saying that the desire for a good house for your wife and children is a bad thing. I'm saying that it, become, it can become a plausible argument. And if you're not careful, it can dilute you. And I began to have conversations in my mind like, God, somehow or another, don't you realize I'm a pastor of this church? I need a place where I can entertain these people. I began to sort of tell God why I needed this house. As if God did not have all that I need already for me, whether we have a house or not. Jesus says in the Gospels that foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And here I am having a discussion in my mind how God needed to work this out for me because I needed this house. And much to my shame, for a period of time there, over a few days, this house became a functional savior to me. Appearance. Uh, I've always wanted to be 6'3". I'm 5'10". <laughs> I was 5'10 in the 6th grade. And I stopped growing. Uh, I, like most men, spent most of my early life drinking protein shakes so that I would add more muscle. And a couple of years I hit the curve in life where I'm trying to eat less so I don't get fat. <laughs> All these years I wanted to gain weight, now I kind of want to keep it off. I realize how much time I spend on thinking about how I look. Do you obsess over clothes? Do you spend an unusual amount of time in front of the mirror in the morning? Do you, like many American people who would call themselves Christians, spend more money on tanning beds than you do on the gospel. Appearance and the broken lies that our culture sends us, especially you young ladies who are bombarded with images on a magazine cover, are particularly susceptible to this functional savior of appearance. Aren't we? Status. <sighs> Pastors do not get together without the age-old question. How many are you running? <laughs> I just want to punch them in the mouth when they ask me that question. But I must confess that I think about how many people come to Crosspoint. And I do put a sinful amount of pride or sorrow in whether or not the crowd is full. I repent of that. That is a functional savior. That's the pastor's functional savior. What's yours? Is there a particular group of people? Are you vicariously living through your child's athletic career so that he might be the athlete that you never were? Are you constantly obsessing over your child's progress in school as that child compares to some friend's child? It's the functional savior of status, and we are all susceptible to it. And maybe the catch-all one, acceptance. Most of the time, I just want people to like me. I want affirmation, and I want adulation. 
And no matter how I'm doing with God, as long as I can get a couple of you to say, oh, you're a good pastor. Thank you for this or thank you for that. I'm okay. Because it comes like a euphoric drug that fuels my soul. And it is a plausible argument that very sneakily and deceitfully can destroy your soul. Because before you know it, you're governed by the fear and opinion of man. Well, those are mine. I know that you have yours. What are your functional saviors today? What is the empty philosophy that you are so prone to? Do you realize that there are plausible arguments that are out to destroy your soul? Paul ends this particular section with this admonition and solution, and we end on this in verse 6. It says, I'm struggling for you, the first five verses. I'm struggling for you so that you would do life together because it's in the context of encouragement, Crosspoint, in Colossian church. It's in the context of encouragement and beautiful intertwinement together as a group of people that you more clearly see Christ which will help you to be wary and on guard against plausible arguments that ultimately want to suck the life out of your soul and destroy you. And so the way that you refute these things is that within the context of this covenant community of encouragement and entwinement, you, as he says in verse 6, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so I end on this. How did you receive Jesus? That moment, if you can remember when you first believed and when it first became evident to you that you needed a Savior, was there anything in you that said, Jesus, I appreciate what you've done on the cross. Um, That is what you can bring to the bargaining table, 75% of it. I bring my 25% and let's have this transaction. And okay, here we go. No, of course not. We all come by grace realizing that we need a Savior. And may I tell you that if it's becoming uh, uh, evident to you that you did not come to Jesus that way, but that you simply came to Jesus for some moralistic help, then you truly did not come to Jesus. The biblical way of coming to Jesus for salvation is by grace. We realize that we bring nothing to the table. That even the faith that we have, as Ephesians 2 says, was given to us as a gift. Even the repentance that we bring, as Paul says to Timothy, was a gift. And so we come knowing that it is all Christ, all Christ, all Christ, and nothing that we have done that saves us. And what Paul is saying is, Christ alone has saved you. You knew that the day that you came to him. Now keep walking in that mindset. As you received Christ, so walk in him. Be on guard against functional saviors. And you can't do that alone. 
commit yourself to another pardoned rebel and a group of pardoned rebels who together are loving one another, who are extending grace to one another, who are rubbing arms together, who are pouring out their gifts and their time and their treasures together so that we would guard one another, so that together we receive Christ and we walk in Him, not an increasing arrogance and self-sufficiency, but an increasing dependency on Christ and one another, which collectively becomes a display of God's glory to a world that is trapped in functional saviors and needs the aroma of Christ. Have you done that? Are you caught up in a cycle of leaning on functional saviors? The good news is today, we can repent and believe in Jesus alone for our salvation. Whether it be for the first time, or whether it be a fresh renewal of reliance on Christ. You guys, come on back. Let's pray. Lord, Father in heaven, I pray now that as we move into a time of contemplation and worship and response that we would not be hasty and that we would not treat our functional saviors lightly. My desire for functional saviors does not just have the capacity to minimize me, it has the capacity to destroy me. And so would you help me realize that today and would you help my brothers and sisters see that today? Lord, for the Christians in this room, would you give us the wisdom of the Holy Spirit Would you give us the gift of continual repentance so that we would see broken crutches that we are propping ourselves up on? And would you give us refreshing joy that comes with repentance and confession that Jesus alone is our Savior? Lord, for those that are in this room today that by your Holy Spirit has become evident to them that they do not know Jesus, Would you give them faith and repentance and would they turn to you? And friend, if that's you, biblical saving faith is not just agreement with the facts of Christianity or agreement that there is a God or agreement even that Jesus is who he says he is. You you actually have to place your trust in it. You have to put the weight of your life and your hope in Christ alone. You have to realize that you can't save yourself and that only Christ alone saves you. And so saving faith is different from just agreeing with a facts type of faith. You have to, as the Bible says, repent and believe, which is really two edges of the same sword. It is going to, with the weight of your life and your hope and your future and your past and your present, you're placing the weight of your life on what Christ did for you on the cross. And 
When you do that, the Bible says that you're born again, that you receive Him. And so do that right now. You don't need to raise your hand or recite a prayer or fill out a card. Just do that right now. Repent and believe. Put the trust of your life. Embrace Christ as the all-consuming treasure of your life. And when you do that, when you see Christ and when you trust Him in that way, the Bible says that you're born again. Do that. Trust in Christ alone, not functional saviors, not, not your good morality. Because, friend, do you really want to stack up your morality before God on that day? No. So trust in Christ today. Father, as we now spend some time singing a few songs and receiving communion, if we are so inclined to receiving prayer or lifting our hands in worship or praying as we're sitting down, God, would you illuminate to our hearts that it is in Christ alone that we are saved. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.